0: All right, well, let's get started. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can open those to Proverbs 16. That would be great. I want to read a verse out of that chapter together tonight. Uh, we'll be a uh, quick announcement. Uh, just to follow up, we are the book release uh, will be uh, two weeks from this Sunday, so the 29th of July. So you can mark that on your calendar. It will be a, a special night for us, at least for me. So I hope for you, too. Um yeah, let's, uh, let's pray, and then we'll preach. Lord, I thank you that you're here in this room tonight. We don't take that for granted. God, we, we have reverence in our hearts that you're here, Jesus. You don't have to be, but you desire to come, and you're a king, and we honor you as a king in this room. God, we prefer you. God, we acknowledge you. We humble ourselves before you and say you can speak to us and we're going to listen to you we're here to hear directly from your mouth what you want to speak and so we just ask god that you will make your whisper known throughout this time lord and even that you'd whisper between the words spoken that you'd penetrate into our hearts that you would Leaven us with your thinking and your perspective so that we leave, God, with your kingdom on the rise in us. God, I thank you that you do not waste space. You don't waste this time, but it is intentional. God, and you have a a great purpose for why we gather tonight. So we ask, God, that your kingdom come and your will be done. That you will bring the kingdom through the words of your mouth tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, who is ready to be good soil tonight? What are the rest of you going to be? Anybody going to be the rocky soil? <laughs> I'd be like, yeah, I guess that's my best option. So uh, I'm going to continue this series to walk amongst the gods, which has been looking at cultural engagement with a postmodern, post Christian America. Uh, we've been looking at the life of Daniel specifically, looked at Ezekiel as well, but as prototypes for people that were engaging with Babylon, which was a powerful, dominant culture that was not after or open to the God of Israel. Uh, and I believe that is a similar context to what we're experiencing here as Christians in this day and age. We are in a dominant, powerful culture that is not hungry for the bread of life. They do not know that they're hungry for the bread of life and do not have an appetite for Jesus. and so we are. Uh, you know, learning how do we leaven an idolatrous culture with the message of the kingdom. And it's been uh, a good series, gotten a lot of feedback, and I think that the Lord is equipping us to practically engage with our world uh, in an in, in effective, uh, in a, in effective um, measure. So last week, uh, we looked at the discipline of Daniel and talked about how discipline and integrity are keys to influencing culture. And within that, we looked at, uh, you know, basically hard work. We talked to the reality that discipline and hard work. Uh, is what creates greatness we know this in the athletic realm all other realms of life and we do not drift into greatness but it is through a very concerted effort of discipline and hard work and doing the little things well day after day after day after day that is what leads to greatness and we're not working for identity or for some sort of affirmation we are doing this because we know who we are and I felt prompted uh, this week that in light of last week's message to spend a little bit more time on the topic of work and specifically giving um, get into not just the behavior of our working but really into the belief system and the motivation of why do we work hard and what is the motivation what is the force that is compelling us in our working does that make sense So I don't want to talk so much about, you know, the behavior of work ethic. I more want to get down into the belief systems that are driving that behavior. And my premise for self-validation is that our work is not to be driven by ego and self-validation, but by a multi-generational vision that is um, inherently uh, one uh, marked by love. And so I will unpack that uh, throughout this night. And, uh, you know, that our work is not to be driven by ego and self-validation, but by a multi-generational vision with love at its center. And so I will hopefully bring that statement uh, into a place of understanding in your hearts tonight. So uh, Proverbs 16, you should be there. We're going to read verse 2. And so when we're talking about motivations, uh, we have to get down uh, into a deeper place than just behaviors and circumstantial triggers um, for our actions. And I love this proverb. I think it's a very um, penetrating verse that if you meditate upon um, can lead to a lot of truth in our lives. And it says this, all the ways of a man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. I want to read that one more time. All the ways of a man are clean in his own sight. We say own sight. Here we go. But the Lord weighs the motives, right? And that is what we're after tonight: is the motives. And it's my belief that as spirit-led Christians, so spirit-led, we are seeking to be motivated by the Spirit of God. Uh, we are not afforded the luxury of superficial thinking. And what I mean by this is oftentimes we will have behaviors um, that when we don't spend the time to actually trace our behaviors to the source of, of what is the motivation for my behavior, but instead we often will settle for superficial external justifications and reasonings for why we're doing the things we're doing. And you know I, I, I talk with People And we've all had these types of conversations where, you know, people know I, know, I know I work too much, but I've got to provide for the family and the finances are tight. Right. And so it's like it's a superficial justification for a behavior instead of actually tracing. No, no. Why are you working too much day after day after day and sacrificing relationships? Right? Uh, why? You know, I, I've heard people share. I cannot even enjoy having people in my home unless everything is perfect, and I'm almost in this manic panic trying to make everything perfect. As that's the only time I can enjoy. And it's like, well, why? Oh, because I want people to feel welcome in my home. It's like, no, no, that's superficial. Like you're not tracing that behavior to like what is motivating that that behavior that you know is probably not right. Does that make sense? Right and and why you know I've I've had people tell me you know I'm always promoting 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 this promoting that it's like well why are you always promoting things to people well because I'm passionate about a product or whatever and it's like okay that might be true but like what is the motive like what is the motivation of why you're doing what you're doing because if we're to be spirit led. Like, we actually have to have the awareness to come past the superficial down into the heart where the Spirit of God lives and resides. And we got to figure out, is my motivation, is what is compelling me the Spirit of God so that I'm Spirit-led? Or am I just operating out of fear or self or, you know, anxiety or whatever it may be? Right, But a lot of times we don't know, and, and we are simply, as Christians, not afforded the luxury to live in ignorance. We, we can't. That's dangerous, to live in ignorance of, I don't know why I do the things that I do. And the reason for that, that we're not afforded this luxury, is what is uh, demonstrated here and communicated by Solomon. All the ways of a man are clean in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs motives, right? And and the problem is that we can justify basically all of our behavior because we will bathe our thoughts and our actions in our good intentions. So though the behavior, what I'm actually doing may communicate something, other words, I have good intentions. And the reality is you can't always trust your good intentions, Right. Has anybody had an experience with someone where you know they have a good heart, you know their intentions are good, but what they're doing is actually hurting you? Has anybody had that? And has anybody had a frustrating conversation when you go in love and you maybe even confront and say, look, what you did has really hurt me, and the response is, oh, I would never do that on purpose. My intentions are so good. And you're like, okay, I, I know your intentions are good, but your actions aren't. You following me? Right? So the reality I'm just trying to communicate here is we can't always trust good intentions. Good intentions don't always translate to spirit-led behavior. Okay? And we want to be spirit-led and so we can't live in the superficial. We can't live in ignorance. We have to know what are the motives. And so, man, everything's clean in my eyes because I see good intentions. i thinking, I'm justifying all the things I'm doing because I'm in my own mind. But the Lord weighs motives. He actually comes in to the, the sacred and intimate space, my decision-making faculty where I'm the ways, the thoughts and the intentions and the motives. And why am I? I doing the things that I'm doing, right? So we have to actually journey with God and allow him into this space to start weighing our motives, to expose ourselves before him, right? The word of God is sharper than a double-edged sword. It's piercing soul and spirit down into the thoughts and the intentions of the heart, right? We actually have to allow him, allow his word, allow his wisdom, allow his spirit to come and start weighing what are my motives? Why am I doing the things that I am doing? Right? And we are again talking about work. Right? John 3.8, Jesus says those, uh, you know, the wind comes and goes. We don't know where it's coming from. We don't know where it's going next. And so are those led by the Spirit. Right? We want to be compelled and moved by the Spirit of God. And it is inside out. Where does the Spirit of God reside? Inside your heart, right? So inside out, upside down, and probably unconventional, but that is how the Spirit moves, and we're to be led by the Spirit. We are to be compelled and pushed like wind, and then we set our sails and allow His creative force to push us and compel us and motivate us in all that we do. Right? We should be the most motivated people on earth, because the Holy Spirit is a really good motivator, right? But we have to learn to discern what is self, what is of the Spirit of God. Does this make sense? This is kind of my introduction. Okay, I'm taking that as a yes, we're going to keep going. I've been studying uh, some entrepreneurs lately. It just felt like the Lord had me invest quite a bit of time reading some books. I read, uh, like, Phil Knight's book on uh, his memoir on how he created Nike. Uh, I read a, a book that was written recently on Elon Musk. And I've been, uh, they're basically marketplace kings, right? So these are people that are influencing culture in a very powerful way. And we've been talking about being an entrepreneurial people, right, using creativity, stepping out to actually create artifacts, which could be a family, a business, uh, a media, whatever it may be. But we're creating things because we're made in the image of the creator that will actually bring people into the presence of God, right? They're, it's actually expressions of the kingdom of God. right We say, let heaven come to earth practically heaven is, is communicated to us as a city called Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem. So God has a city, which a city is a hub of human creativity and culture, businesses, government, laws, families, schools, everything that goes into a city, that's what heaven's like. And God has called us to be an entrepreneurial people. He's commissioned us in the Great Commission to go and disciple nations. He said, pray like this, that my kingdom come, my will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So he's saying, I want you to be these entrepreneurial people that will step out and create my city on earth. This is awesome. Right, so I've been studying these entrepreneurs that are they, they are they are still made in the image of God. They have gifts, and I've been trying to glean inspiration from them. Um, and I just feel the Lord's uh, just had me here, and it's been interesting as I've read these are these are secular men. These, these aren't Christians. They're not living in relationship with God. They have gifts from God because God is kind, uh, and He gives gifts to all of us in the sense of making us in His image. Gives us imagination. Gives us abilities to decide and create. Um, but they're not in. Relationship. With God. I want to make that clear. Uh, but the inspiration that I've been drawing is it's remarkable how their creative process basically drives down to they receive inspiration in the form of a vision of something that does not exist, but they see it, and then they step out and risk and create it. And they risk a lot of money and resource and they sow themselves, and they work insanely hard, and they create these businesses or products or things that are transforming the way that humans live life, right? And so I've been gleaning inspiration from this. Um, I'm also, there is an underside um, to what is very, from, you know, a Christian worldview. As you, as you look at these things, you see that um, there is often addiction, uh, divorce, a very egocentric um, self-motivation um, um, woven into it. And if I could boil it down to a simple statement, it's often that uh, people, and, and this is not, I'm, just speak, I'm not just speaking of these two men of Russians, this is, you know, this is probably a general statement, is you often, um, the, the price of your public accolade is private chaos. And there's actually a breach of integrity in many, and this is across the board. I mean, who, who watched the Steve Jobs movie? Right? It, it made you almost angry uh, Seeing the, the behind the scenes. So there was no integrity. There was a difference between the public persona and the inner life. And, you know, I, I'm not trying to point a finger here, and I will say that this is actually uh, uh, in ministry settings as well. Um, and I'm sure we've all seen this in different capacities where there is a difference. There's a breach of integrity between public accolade and success, even in ministry, and the private life. So I'm not trying to point fingers. I'm just saying this is, um, this is my observation. Right? Is there still this? um, It's not the kingdom. And so I've been gleaning inspiration uh, and I've also uh, been trying to infuse what I'm learning from this entrepreneurial mindset that they're pioneering and try to say, okay, how do we glean inspiration from what culture is creating? Because it's amazing in so many facets. But then also infuse this perspective with the kingdom of God. Does this make sense? So how do I how do I how do I how do I glean? How do I you know eat the meat and throw away the bone? But then also infuse this with perspective on how are we to go and influence culture ourselves, right? Because uh, there's things that we can learn from from men like these, women, other women, all all kinds of things, and. Uh, so I wanna I wanna offer uh, two perspectives on the motivation behind our work. Um, one is going to be a microeconomic perspective that's going to make this really practical for you, like tomorrow. And then I want to zoom out to a macroeconomic perspective and actually look at like in the whole piece of what is the the motivation of my work. You know, through this next you know, decades of my life that I'm going to be, you know, working. Um, Work is an important part of our lives. It's probably what you will do most before I see you next Sunday is work, right? So when I'm talking about work tonight, I'm simply talking about what do you do, you know, with with your life? Like, what are you doing Monday through Friday, sometimes Saturday, right? This is not trying to over-spiritualize. This is just simply your work. So on a microeconomic view... Uh, work is worship, and I want to talk and speak to work as an act of worship. I had a professor uh, in my undergraduate that uh, she was teaching the class, and it was a class on like Christian spirituality or something like that, and her husband, uh, I believe is a businessman, I I don't remember the exact details, but he used to go and he would retreat with monasteries, and he would spend like a week to two weeks at a time with monks on a monastery. And one of the first times I think he did this, he gets to the monastery, and he was thinking it was going to be more of like, I think, a spiritual retreat where you're just kind of praying and reading your Bible and resting or whatever. And uh, on the monasteries, they work a lot. And uh, everyone has their jobs. It's kind of like this communal system. And so, I, I forget the exact details. It's irrelevant. But it was something like he got out in the orchards and he had to like pick peaches. And he was kind of like, "Why am I picking peaches? I'm here at a spiritual retreat." And she's telling the story, and so he was finally, he's like, well, all right, I'm here. I'm going to pick more peaches than any monk on this monastery has ever picked in their life, right? And he's just going to town, picking, 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 picking peaches. He just gets this, you know, heaping pile full of peaches, brings it back all proud, expecting to just be, you're, the, you're a gift to this community, you know? And in a matter of like a few minutes, The monk, uh, kind of the head monk that he was reporting to, asked a few questions that led him to this place of recognizing that uh, though he had picked a lot of peaches, uh, there was no worship involved at all in what he'd been doing. And all of a sudden was almost like disturbed because it was like, you don't care? And he said, no, I don't really care how many peaches you picked. It was like, what is the posture of your heart as you're picking these peaches? And he realized the whole day was waste because his motivation was not to worship Jesus it was self. I'm going to pick as many peaches as I can. Right? And I think so many times in American civilization, in our society, we go to work and we measure a productive day by how many peaches we picked. And I don't think that's the scale that Jesus is thinking and spending much time on. It's where is your heart as you're doing the work? Right? Where are the motives of your heart? Why are you picking the peaches? Right and and uh, this story is stuck with me because I think it has profound implications. I read another book of another monastic when I was probably eighteen or nineteen years old by a a man named Brother Lawrence called Practice the Presence of God, and uh, he's a German monk I believe in like the sixteen hundreds, and he set it as his life to learn to abide. "...consciously and stay in communion with God throughout every day, every moment of his life." And there are stories, literally, of people coming by mule or horseback from miles and miles away, this is in the 1600s, to come and watch Brother Lawrence do the dishes. Because as he did the dishes, there was such a strong presence of God, it was as if his face was glowing. And people would come into the manifest presence of Jesus." And it's a little book called The Practice of the Presence of God. I, I'd recommend it. I've read it multiple times, and it disturbs me every single time because I feel like an infant. <laughs> um, and, I, and honestly, just being, I, I threw it out at one point. I was like, that's hyper spiritual. I was like, that's hyper spiritual. That's for a monk. That's not for me. I live in the real world. And honestly, the longer I'm in ministry, the more I'm becoming convinced that that is not hyperspiritual, that is not some type of ethereal reality, but it is a, a, an invitation into what normal Christianity is supposed to look like. I'm living my life in constant communion with Jesus, and with all my mind, heart, soul, and strength, I'm worshiping him throughout every minute of my day. I'm staying in this unbroken place of connection with the Lord. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.17, it says, Pray without ceasing. I don't think that's like a, you know, what does that mean, without ceasing? I think in the Greek it means pray without ceasing. Don't stop praying, right? Uh, when I was in Africa a number of years ago uh, with Heidi Baker and her ministry uh Uh, She shared one day, um, in in light of this Pray Without Ceasing concept, how it's a world of crisis. I mean, if anybody's been in foreign missions, you know there is always problems. Nothing ever goes according to plan. And, uh, you know, they, they would say the phrase there was, heaven's invading in hell's backyard. So it was constant crisis, crisis, crisis. And she said whenever the crisis would happen early in the ministry, um, it was just chaos trying to get those to go away and fix them as fast as possible. So one day she has a vision and it's of a chicken running with its head cut off. And the Lord said, that's you every time there's a crisis. And he said, basically she realized I'm not praying at all. Like, I'm not even in connection or worshiping God in the midst of the crisis. I'm like a chicken with my head cut off. She shared her story, and I just remember this struck me. Uh, At the end, she said, I'm to the point where I never stop praying, even when I'm texting people. She's like, I'm just praying in my spirit, even as I'm sending texts. She's like, I don't ever stop. I was like, oh, my gosh. I'm good to get, like, 40 minutes, you know. I start sending emails, and I'm gone. Um, I think often it's the crisis of life, because if we're, you know, let's, let's contextualize this here. Uh, we are constantly faced with crisis, the urgent. You need to send this email by 930. You need to get that in. This is coming. This deadline on Wednesday afternoon. This, that, that. The kid left his backpack. You got to get to this, the lunch, whatever it is. The car broke. Like, there are constant, urgent deadlines, crises that we are facing In the reality of the workplace, right? Am I in the right room? There's always something. There's always a text waiting. There's always an email coming. There's always something that you might have forgot. Like, there's always something that's coming. And the reality is we work sometimes like chickens with our heads cut off, and we miss the, the, the ability to worship Jesus because of that. Right? And this is just speaking for myself. When there are crises, I've had about three this week, three crises. My initial response, I've still not gotten to the point where my initial response is to worship. My initial response is how do I shut this down and, and get the fire hydrant turned off as fast as possible? And for me, I know why. I don't like crisis. It pulls me back to crisis in my past, which means I'm afraid. And so my motivation in doing that is fear. And though my behavior may look good on the outside, every action will always be derived back to its source. And so if I'm acting a fear to try to put a crisis down, even though it looks good, it's an act of idolatry. Because if you follow the source, it points right back to me being afraid. Right? All the ways man. All the ways of a man look clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs motives. Right? What are the motivations for the actions that we're doing? When we learn and cultivate, pray without ceasing, when we take this serious, we're actually beginning to get to a place where I'm in such connection with the Lord that my every action is motivated by the Spirit of God. I'm doing it with Him, and His presence is now releasing into the environments that I'm in. This is real. This is practical. This isn't ethereal. This is right in front of us every single day of our lives, especially as we're in the workplace. So I would like to propose that a day of worship in the workplace probably looks different than the typical American workday. Wouldn't you agree with that? It probably looks different than what culture is doing. And it might not look different externally, but it is, it, it's a different motivation than what most people are doing on the day-to-day grind. And I believe that if we are to enter into a, a dynamic place of worship, we have to start risking with the way we are investing our time, our passion, our energy, and our just our own personal resource. And I just want to, like, put a practical example of a risk. I've got six emails. I've got someone calling. I've got this crisis. And instead of being a chicken with my head cut off to go and just engage, I say, you know, I'm going to take a risk. And I'm going to pull back for 15 minutes, shut my phone down, and I'm going to worship you until I have a sense of peace. And then I'm going to walk with you and say, where do I start first? That's a risk. That's different than how we've been told to work, Right? Anybody get that in orientation, first day of work? <laughs> Wouldn't that be cool? Those are the type of business plans and organizational cultures I believe the Lord's wanting to create is ones where we are infusing divine wisdom and how do you spell faith? R-I-S-K. Infusing faith into the daily operations of how we are working within the world God's called us to serve. Right? We're not just going to do the same thing that everybody else does. We've got to start thinking differently and maybe, just maybe, God will show up. It's like Daniel. He's there. He takes a risk. I'm not going to eat this food that everybody else is eating. I'm going to eat this food, even though I shouldn't have calories. I shouldn't look good. It's counterintuitive. I need a bunch of vegetables that all the people eat and eat and the wine. And for some reason, he looks fatter than the rest of them. little fat golden boy. (laughs) I'm joking. But the favor of God was on him. Right? I believe that if we will take a risk and say, okay, okay, I'm going to do something different. I'm going to actually make myself dependent. I'm actually going to put myself in a place, in the workplace, to test out, does John 15 really work? Does the vine that abides in the branch really bear more fruit? I'm going to to put myself out and see what happens. I believe God will show up and somehow you'll be the fat golden (laughs) voice. I think that's funny. Um, In this context, I felt the Lord wanted me to highlight that uh, you have permission to rest. Rest is not celebrated in a production-based society, in in an economic world. Uh, But if we cannot or do not have healthy rhythms of rest, it is a sheer indicator that our identity is not being derived completely in God. Right, we do not we receive our identity in his presence. We receive who we are, we are nourished and we are affirmed and validated and encouraged and, and anointed and equipped when we are receiving the presence of God. So if I am so busy that I'm working, 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 and I cannot rest, and I'm not just speaking, just 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 there's a spiritual essence of rest, but like. You're refreshed through play. You're refreshed through self-care. Like, right, rest is essential to a body. That's why we sleep every night. If I am so busy working that I cannot rest, I, I'm there's identity I'm finding here in my work, which means that my work is an act of idolatry, not worship. And I believe that we will know. Our identity is—and I'm speaking to myself, just so you know. Um, I've been convicted recently that I, I will justify um, forgoing rest because of the important things I'm doing. And that's because there's a motivation that's not pure. So this is, this is just my process. Um, but when our identity becomes fully grounded in who we are in Jesus, I believe that worship and work is the most natural expression of— of that identity. We are worshipers of Jesus. So we're we're journeying to embody like Heidi, like Brother Lawrence, where it is the natural expression of who I am to be in constant communion with God. Amen? So risk uh, in creating space to connect with Jesus in the face of all the urgent demands of life. I dare you. Show him that you actually believe he is God above it all. Show him with your action that you actually believe he is the creator of the world that makes the globe keep spinning, not you. I dare you. So that's a microeconomic view. That should be practical. That should be applicable to tomorrow. Um, and I want to jump over here to more of a macroeconomic 10,000-foot perspective on work. And I believe that the the... When we look at, you know, we have this compilation of work. We work throughout our lives, and there should be a, a, um, a point, right? Like a guiding point, a force that's driving us as far as the aim of all of this work. When we put it together, our portfolio should be pointing in one direction. And I believe that the motivation as far as the lifetime of our work should be a multi-generational vision, right? And I say a multi-generational vision because... Uh, this will actually safeguard us from sacrificing people on the road to success, all right? So I, I, I want to unpack that. Abraham, uh, if we contextualize him in modern day, he was not a pastor. He was an entrepreneur and a businessman, and uh, by all accounts of the Bible, a very successful one. And uh, he left and went to Israel and uh, became even more prosperous is, to the point that Lot had to leave because there was too many herds. Uh, so he is an entrepreneurial businessman with a multi-generational promise. All right, that you're going to be a father of nations. I'm going to bless through your son. And I would like you to just ponder for a moment that without Isaac, all of Abraham's business success uh, would have basically meant nothing we wouldn't really know who he is at all. <laughs> would be like, great, you had a lot of cows. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> right, without Isaac, Abraham's just a dude with a bunch of cows and a lot of money. That's kind of, you know, I would say that it's the same for us. Without Isaac, all of our success Really means relatively little in the grand meta-narrative of the human story of God right, you know, God's masterpiece through us. Right? It doesn't mean very much without Isaac. It's just a blip on the radar that comes and goes just as quickly as it came. Right? So a multi-generational vision, there's a lot of wisdom in the Lord here. A multi-generational vision actually places family at the center of our work. Right? It it redefines success through a relational paradigm. Meaning, this, I can't see success anymore. I can't see a vision that would necessitate me to do actions that sacrifice relationships in my life and call that success. Right? Because without Isaac, my life doesn't mean very much. Right so how many people just raise your hands if you know the first and last name of your grandparents Keep them raised if you know the first and last names of your great grandparents Keep them raised if you know the names of your great great grandparents Keep them raised if you know the next generation So we're four generations from being forgotten Four generations Let's Let that sit Four generations The reason that strikes a chord is because eternity is written in our hearts. We we were created to live a life that breaks the confines of these 80 years and makes an impact into eternity. So when you start thinking from eternity's perspective, success, you know, the things that we say are so successful suddenly can seem not so successful. Like, wow, you have a lot of cows. You picked a lot of peaches. Awesome. What's your name again? The only way we will break that mold, and, and, and I do want to make this, is I don't necessarily think it matters how much men remember our names. But I do long to enter, you know, I think when we get into eternity, we'll stand before the throne of God. I think some people will get there by the skin of their teeth. Praise God. His grace is amazing. But I don't want to get there by the skin of my teeth. I want to get there and I want to be able to look out and see the legacy that my life created. The ripple effect of righteousness that God did through a nobody named Jordan Verner. That's, that's the compelling vision, that I am a man with a multi-generational promise. And I believe because we are sons and daughters of the eternal one, we are created with a multi-generational legacy woven into who we are. Right? But we have to be, mo- like, so there's a motivation that we can tap into here, but that will point us, the motivation will point us to people, Right? Because when we talk about leaving an inheritance, we're like, yeah, you know, make a lot of money, success, so that I can just give that to my kids. That's not, that is not a multi generational legacy. A legacy is you're passing on who you are. Right? This is Jesus. Jesus is a real successful minister. He had a lot of people that heard him preach, he healed some people, he was awesome. But without these disciples, you know, that we wouldn't know his name. That's crazy because Jesus had a multi-generational mandate on his life. He spent so much time and he actually passed on who he was to other people. He actually multiplied himself, which means you have to slow down and you have to listen and you have to love and you have to invest and you can't hide who you are because you pass on exactly what's inside you. In the generation below you. But walks in you will run in the people in the generation below you. So if you have a porn addiction that walks in you, it will run in the next generation. If you are a person of righteousness and holiness and you spent your life seeking God, it will run in the generation after you because we are created to be these conduits of a multi-generational narrative that God has been singing across generations. And if we can tap into the motivation of love, Right, That's the motivation we're trying to get to. That should be the motivation of our work. I'm going to work. I'm going to be disciplined because I am so motivated by the love of God that I can lay my life down for other people to create a ripple of righteousness, a a, a wake of redemption and healing in a world that's full of suffering. We can break the confines and we can live a life that echoes beyond these 80 years. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He identifies himself by their names. He's the son of David. He identifies himself by David. Right? We're reading a book of people that did this very thing because of the way they loved. That was the culmination of their work. I believe that there are multi-generational legacies, family lineages that that, that God wants to write in, in the business, in the marketplace, in government, in education, in the church, right? That, 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 that the work we have to do in these different spheres of culture. Like, yes, we have things to do, but we're living for a generation to come. We're living, right, for for a generation that perhaps is even unborn, some of them at this point. That's amazing. Like the implications of our life are profound and they're powerful, and that is a powerful motivation when we tap into that. It's legacy. So, the day to day, I'm learning to worship Jesus, right? I'm paying the price of how do I, I'm risking, I'm experimenting even, I'm, I'm testing the waters with the Lord, not in a moral sense, but in my faith, right? Trying to learn, how do I pray without ceasing? How do I worship you, right? This is the day-to-day, but the, 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 the meta-narrative of my life, right? The, the story of my life is I am working, I am walking on a journey of a multi-generational mandate that's on my life. Right? And I'm looking for the Isaacs, Right? And you, know, you know, it doesn't matter if you're your spiritual. It can be spiritual children, it can be natural children. It can be, you know, people that are employed. It, it just, it's just—it's who God has put in front of you that you're to give of yourself to. It's kind of awesome. So I just want to pray, Lord. I thank you, God. I thank you that this is within our reach. God, that what you're speaking on tonight, God, is not far out. It's not for the super spiritual. It's not for the special ones. God, it's for all of us. Thank you that this looks like something tomorrow. God, that worship looks like something tomorrow. It looks like something as we're sending emails. It looks like something as we're in staff meetings. It looks like something, God, when we're in the things that, that may seem pointless. It's not about how much we do or what we feel about God. It is about worshiping you in everything we do. And I just pray, God, that Holy Spirit, you will deposit wisdom and creativity. You will show us new ideas. You will show us new ways of thinking and engaging with with our work, God, so that we can be the most worshipful people, God, in all that we're doing, that we just think that's going each day is a new opportunity to worship you in the face of everything that's going on. And God, I ask that we will be like Brother Lawrence, that people will begin to notice there is a quality, there is a substance, there is something about us because we carry you God, in such a measure that we are influencing people, that, that your presence upon us will open doors, that it will give favor, that it will bring promotion, that it will give us opportunities, God, to influence people with the message of your kingdom. And Lord, I thank you for the multi-generational legacies that are represented in this room, I thank you, God, that you are stirring some out of a out of a stupor. God, you are redefining success. God, you are re- sh- you're, you're shifting and recalibrating our perspective so that we can see our life, we can see God it, with, with your eyes Lord and, and begin to just sow in and recognize the Isaacs and recognize those that you have brought into our lives that we are to lay ourselves down and, 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 and bestow who we are upon. God it's not it's not even a large number for everyone. You had 12 Lord. I pray that you'll begin to show us those God if it's employees if it's friends, if it's children, if it's uh, people we mentor, whatever it is Lord that we will begin to live with, with, with the next generation in mind and we will not make decisions God that are selfish we will not make decisions that are just for our own gratification but everything we've received Lord we will steward it in such a way that we pass on something so valuable to the generation to come so that we can stand before your throne one day God and look and see the the, the legacy God the the ripple effect of our lives, God, throughout eternity. We, we don't care, God, if we're known in the eyes of man, God, but we do care that we are known, God, that we're honored in your eyes, God, that we are celebrated, God, and, and, and rewarded on that day when the culmination of our work is revealed, when the culmination of our worship is is manifested before your very throne, God, let that be a glorious day for this house, I pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. God's doing a good thing. He's he's shifting. He's recalibrating us. he's, He's positioning us to be Daniels. To be marked by favor. It's exciting times. It's exciting times to be the church. Do not let people tell you that it is a bad time to be a Christian in America. This is the day we were made for.